At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Alan Parker said, sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is writer-director Mustafa Saberti. Woohoo! Did I get there? Yeah, you got it. Good man, good man. I fired Kinder Egg in the post. <laughs> <laughs> I know, what a dickhead I am thinking to be proud of that. Anyway, <laughs> pronouncing a name right, my word. Um so we've not come to talk about my uh, my inability to uh, to guess guess names all, all around. Uh, we've come to talk about you as a filmmaker. Come on then, I ain't got a day. What are you after? Can I get a cube of that skunk? Hang on a minute. Who told you about this place again? Suki. Right. You guys wait here and I'll go upstairs and get the skunk ready for you. Is that all right? You're right, Lucy. Yeah. You never guess what? Go on. I've got two birds sitting here. And? The sickest in the mouth. Fucking dickhead. I'm coming round. I'm gonna die, I've got to get out of here. <laughs> You're in the process of just locking in on your latest short film called Hate. And we'll talk about other films you've made after we've done this. But first, do you want to give people uh, a brief synopsis to what Hate is all about and give them a proper update as to where it is? Uh, yeah, it's it's basically, it's written and starring Hamza Arshad. Hamza Arshad is a YouTuber, creator for change, uh, and he he's he's done quite a lot of like comedy sketches, and he rose to fame quite a few years ago actually through the Diary of a Badman YouTube kind of comedy video. So he's kind of grown quite a, a big audience from that. And uh, currently, I'm over at Big Deal Films, uh, which is a production television production company uh, where I'm script developing and producing various projects for both TV and film. And Danny Joshi, the managing director here, he actually manages Hamza Arshad. So a lot of the stuff that is revolves or involves uh, Hamza 
I I I sometimes get to be involved in uh, with as well. Mm. Uh, so um, yeah, I, I, you know, I um, I started to direct. I directed Coconut starring Hamza through Big Deal Films, just as a director, quite some time ago. And then from that, I kind of just, uh, you know, came, became part of the team uh, here over at Big Deal Films. So Hamza, uh, he wrote a short script. Uh, well, basically, let me, let me go back. He basically directed uh, this short film called Boys Don't Cry, which he wrote and directed quite some time ago. Okay. I don't know. I said time, until about maybe six months six, seven months ago about men's mental health and suicide. So it was a, it was very lyrical and a narrative piece, which he just done all on his own. And it, I think he made a cover of the Metro uh, paper and the Evening Standard. It was in there and uh, it made a front cover of, of YouTube. And, you know, he'd done quite a lot of good things uh, regarding the stigma of mental health uh, surrounding young men. Mm-hmm. So anyway, recently what, what Hums has done in the past is he's toured uh, schools and with the police uh, and he's done a lot of stuff uh, educating young people uh, against radicalisation because uh, Hamza being a young Pakistani British male uh, you know that's something that's very close to his heart and, you know to to get the message out there that radicalisation is a pretty you know fucked up thing yeah. and, and, and so he did that he toured the country with the police actually uh, I think I think it was over Eight thousand schools or something, I can't remember. But anyway, he he told the country with the police and he did that. So recently, the police got in touch after they saw his "Boys Don't Cry" video and they're like, "Hey man, do you want to do a video for us against hate crime and against anti, you know, all, all this radicalization and knife crime and acid attacks and things like that that's going on?" And Hamza was, he was you know, he jumped, he jumped for the opportunity. opportunity to work with the police again, it was the Met Anti-Terror Police Unit, to wow. work with those guys again, yeah, and to create a film that they could use online and that they could use as a training uh, as a training tool for, for members of the police force, uh, as well as to, yeah, tour the country again, uh, trying, to, trying to connect with young people about the dangers of radicalisation, you know, xenophobia, uh, knife crime and so forth. So Hamza had written the script, and I had nothing to do with it at the start because uh, I, I, I do a lot of script development stuff over at Big Deal. He, he, he was like, "Do you want to have a look at this?" I looked at it. He's like, and I was like, "Wow, this is like twenty pages or so long." And I was like, "You know, it's a short film, and you know the budget isn't. I think the budget. I don't know. I think it's around fifteen or fourteen grand, whatever. I think it's less than that. So it's a really tiny, tiny budget." And uh, so I helped him cut it down and kind of just develop the script so it just felt a bit stronger. And then he was just like, well, it's actually, do you know what? I could use your help. Do you want to co-direct this with me? Because I'm starring in it and it's it's pretty big. You know, it's a, it's a pretty big uh, piece. Uh, and I was like, yeah. So, I, you know, I, I was like, all right, cool, let's do it. You know, we've already got such a tight kind of relationship, myself and him. We're we're pretty, we're just very in line. I guess it's one of those things like you know I'm not comparing myself to those guys. I'm not saying I'm on that level, but the, that kind of relationship with Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg. Do you know what I mean? That kind of thing. Got you. So so we um, so I agreed to direct, and then I think two weeks before production was about to start, we lost the production manager and the line producer. 
just because it was just it was a, it's a lot, man. Like this 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 thing has got a massive cast. It's got multiple multiple locations. It's got it's got riots. It's got uh, it's got petrol bombs. It's got. So just just rewind a second there, then. So in terms of the t- the two right. you just use there is lost. Uh, for the filmmakers listening out there, what, you mean that they were no longer available to do the work? Yeah, they were not, yeah, I think one of them just felt the pressure, <laughs> and then another one had to move on. <laughs> one of them cracked under pressure, and then the other one. You know what it is? I think with like, man, you got to be a DIY filmmaker. I think you know, yeah, money solves a lot of problems, but it doesn't solve everything. Okay. But at the same time, you know, when you're when you're being ambitious, and sometimes being too ambitious is isn't a good idea because you know you you, you know it it it, um, it it affects the quality and compromises the quality of the thing you're trying to make. But I'm I'm one hell of a crazy motherfucker, and uh, and, and and so is Hamza. So we you know we wanted to do it. So about yeah about two weeks before I just kind of stepped up, stepped in to produce as well as direct it's with Hamza. <laughs> so now what's what's interesting is seeing I mean most of us will obviously be familiar with Hamza in front of the camera and he's yeah. he's a very physical presence to say the least yeah. when he's in front of the camera how is he as a collaborator and how did you find how, how do you find the collaboration with him behind the camera yeah it's interesting because it was like, it was like the first thing I've I've kind of yeah, it's the first time I've co-directed. I normally just direct on my own. You know, I've only had, I think, one experience with a producer standing over my shoulder, mm. uh, you know, you know, looking at the monitor on a TV production. I've only had that once, you know, that, you know, being really, really, what's the word, you know, had, you know, really, um, really engaged and uh, tied into that kind of process. So... It was a, it was it was a, it was a really interesting one because me and Hamza, I think at the first time we worked together just as a director, actor on Kodner, you know, he just he was a bit unsure because he also directs his own things and having me come out of nowhere, somebody he doesn't have any relationship with, and trying to kind of steer him away from acting a certain way hmm. and to act in another way, uh, you know, ca- you know, in a very counterintuitive manner, uh, you know, at first he was a bit whoa uh but after a couple of days of <laughs> a couple of days of you know f- you know fire on set he he just went you know what i trust you let's do this and you know that was an amazing experience and on this one because that kind of trust and that relationship has has been established on coconut or in the christmas cracker the james uh, hamza arshad uh christmas jumpers short that we did for sky yeah starring Gilligan and Emily Attack, you know, because we did that, you know, just our relationship was only strong. But with this, um, yeah, like I said, so that trust was there. But I guess co-directing is a is a totally different beast, isn't it? You know, I was going to say, did, I, did, did you have did you have to have sort of a, a kind of sit down first as to what the rules of engagement were going to be? You know, in terms of obviously you might direct one way and he might direct another, and all the trust in the world won't make well, that the same, will it? So did you have to sort of lay down ground rules to help? direct the movie or did you no not really i think we just went we just went into it like you know i think it's, you know it's a drama so you know most of my work is comedy and most of his work is comedy uh, and i'll talk about that you know drama is certainly easier and i can talk about that later but mm-hmm. just kind of went into it where you know he hasn't had it, he hadn't 
up to that point had a professional film crew, hadn't had, you know, second AC, third AC, first AD, second AD, Gaffer, Sparks. Okay, got you, you, got you, got you. He didn't didn't have that. And then when I'm on set and I'm talking about coverage and blocking, you know, two shots and, you know, where the line is and not to cross the line and all of those things, um, you know, that language, you you know, he, he wasn't as familiar with that stuff, but, uh, I think as the shoot went on, you know, he he picked up a lot of that stuff. So, but you know, the way I approached it is let's just tell the story. So what we would do on set is um, I would, uh, you know, since Hamza's baby, it's his project. He's got a vision for it. Uh, I would let him, you know, we would work out the scene, the act, the action. So it's like working out the action, and then we would have a discussion between us in terms of performance or, or how or coverage. And then once we agreed on something or, you know, even if we didn't agree, what we would agree to do is do it both ways. That's so yeah, we'd agree to do it both ways. So, and to be honest with you, that was, that was good. And because some things I wasn't sure of actually worked and some things he wasn't sure of worked do you know what I mean? So that well, I, suppose, really... I suppose all I mean it, it, until it's shot, nobody knows what it's eventually going to look like, do they? So I suppose in the spirit of trial and error, then doing it both ways yeah. gives you the best options, doesn't it? I suppose. Well, do you know what? It's, it's a drama, so the performances just need to feel you know it all needs to feel very grounded and, and, and realistic and, and not melodramatic, and it's spoken piece as well. It's just like a narrative. It's got like a monologue over over the. What, what's the, what's, the, what's the synopsis? I mean, you said you said what the theme is and what, what and who commissioned it. So, as far as the story goes, what's yeah. the kind of synopsis for it? What's what's the synopsis for I, it? You know, I don't, I don't, I, I, hope you don't mind. I don't really want to talk. I, I want the film to speak for itself. Okay, because uh, it deals with kind of really topical things, political and social, and things that you know go, that have been going on for the last couple of years, and. Uh, all I can say is, you know, we really wanted to create something uh, that ultimately just kind of uh, focused on the idea of hate and the action of hate and the creation of hate. Okay. Uh, and hopefully, we've shown that in a way which feels uh, which which feels balanced. Where, uh, yeah. So, so no, that's uh, fine. Yeah, no, 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 it's not. It's not. I mean, it speaks for itself. Given who's commissioned it and the title, um, in terms of where where you might do that, you'd have to be living in a bubble, not to have yeah. not to have understood not to have understood the climate in Britain over the last sort yeah. of five to ten years, if not more. Yeah. You know. So, in terms of in terms of it being when when it's ready next month, hopefully, and you said yeah. you said it was going to be used as a training video for for police and security forces and stuff, but is it going to be made more widely available for general audiences to see as well? Yeah, I'll be on, I think I'll go up on Hamza's YouTube page. Okay. Uh, so yeah, it'll be available for everybody to watch. Brilliant. Uh, I don't know if YouTube are going to give it a push like they did with Boys Don't Cry. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, they, they do. It, one thing you said during during that was you said that that drama's easier to direct or not as I don't know whether easy is the right word but I'll use that for the sake of a shorthand easier to direct than comedy. Do you want to sort of illustrate why you think that as a director, sort of going into this project versus say directing comedy before? What 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 is it you mean by it being easier? 
Oh man, it's just so much easier because I think when you're <laughs> there's people there's throwing just... laptops out the window right now. You know that, don't you? <laughs> Well, I, I, don't get me wrong, I'm a, I love comedy. I love comedy. I love action. You know, I love drama. I love genre. Mm. Uh, but I think comedy, there's, for a start, there's seven types of different comedies, isn't there? There's like parody, there's spoof, there's dark comedy, there's slapstick comedy, uh, there's black, yeah, black comedy. There's so many different types of comedy. And then, you know, comedy, the to- it's all about tone. When it comes to comedy, it's about tone right. and making sure that the tone is correct, you know, and sometimes, uh, um, you know, the tone can be affected by uh, cast, delivery of lines, the lines on the page, uh, how it's performed, uh, and also timing and the edit. There's so many different variables when it comes to comedy. It's, it's It takes real skill uh, to get, to get you know, comedy right especially like laugh out loud comedy that's the type of comedy that i love i love to laugh mm. so you know you know so to get that right it just takes a lot of skill whereas with a drama you know all you have to do really is um uh and 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 you know i'm not trying to belittle it in any way but all, you know all you have to do is uh focus on the emotion and the honesty of the performance and, and the more honest it is and from from a performance point of view, from a camera coverage point of view, you know, the, it's, it's all it's a little bit counterintuitive, isn't it? The more nuanced it is, and the more reserved and observational you are, and the more honest it, yeah, the more honest it is, the more powerful it can be. Uh, you, you know, rather than telling the audience how to feel, if you present something as it is, uh, you know, they can make up their own mind and engage. Okay, I see, I see what you're saying now. So, in a sense, there's a there's an element of sort of purposeful choreography that goes behind whatever comedy you choose to direct. Whereas with drama, it could end up being the least is the most you need, as it were. Yeah, like I said, I think with comedy, a lot of it's tone. It's like you could deliver. <coughs> sorry, excuse me, clear my throat. Uh, with with comedy, it's like you know uh, some actors. Uh, what they don't trust the writing, so what they do is kind of ham up the comedy to make it funny. Whereas if they just trusted the writing on the page and delivered it honestly and truthfully, it would it would be comedy. It would be funny. It would be inherently funny for what it is. Uh, so you know, sometimes you can cast somebody who who isn't who doesn't who doesn't give you know uh, you know who doesn't give an honest um, kind of performance and try to ham it up to make it funny. It doesn't need to be hammed up. You know, actually, by hamming it up, you kind of it kind of takes you out a bit. But again, it depends on the type of comedy you're making. You know, like uh, Harry is it Harry Hill? Uh, you know, he's got a, is it Harry Hill? Well, there, there is Harry Hill, the comedian. Yeah, yeah, the bold, the bold dude. Like I know he does. Yeah, so a lot of his comedy is like really big, isn't it? Really big, really super heightened and silly. So that kind of comedy wouldn't, you know, uh, you know, has a, has a, that that's fine for that type of audience, you know. But you know, the comedy that I love, um, and I, like, you know, I do love black comedy. I do, I do love laugh out loud comedy. Uh, the comedy that I love uh, also works on an emotional level with everything else that's going on in the story. Do you know what I mean? Like if you watch a certain Marvel film, you know, or you watch ET. Or watch other things, or, or dramas. Even they do, they, you know, they're not all just a palette of darkness and misery. Well, some are, but you know, I, I, no, I get what I you're saying. But, if, but, but from but from, when, from what you're saying there, it sounds like the voice of experience in the sense of 
you've you've worked with an actor that maybe wants that wants to do something more than what you want in terms of performance. So from a from a professional point of view, how how do you go about ensuring you get the tone or the delivery you want when you know when maybe there's some resistance there? Uh, well, you you allow them to go big as possible. So what I do is I'll let them go big just to get out of the system. Got you. I'll just let out that performance, and then once they let it out, <laughs> yeah, go, let's go again, and then we can start. We can start taking it down. We can start toning it down. You know, mm. about how about how I normally do it. I just let them do it and let them get out of the system. <laughs> well, no, it's good because that what you said. It's like that. That's because. There's an autocratic way, isn't there, which is do this, stop doing that. And then there's the collaborative thing, which is let's see what that looks like and feels like and then yeah. gradually get to a place where you go where you wanted it and then you've got everything else in between, haven't you, as well? It's a bit funny enough. It's a bit like what you were saying before. Um, yeah, okay, do you know what? I guess here's a good example. Like the, the comedy between Ghostbusters 1984 and, not, and 2016, if you look at comedy and Ghostbusters, hmm. it's all played real. You know, it's all dialogue heavy. It's all comedy coming from character. You know, for you know, like the state. I'm saying, you know, somebody pretty recently, but the state puffed marshmallow man. You know, you're like, oh my god, that's so crazy and silly. But actually, it came from uh, Ray's mind, didn't he? He's like, oh my god, I thought the most harmless thing ever. Well, there's something you don't see every day. I tried to think of the most harmless thing, something I loved from my childhood, something that could never ever possibly destroy us, Mr. Stay puffed. Nice thinking, Ray. We used to roast Stay Puft marshmallows by the fire at Camp Wakanda. Ray has gone bye-bye, Egon. What have you got left? Sorry, Venkman. I'm terrified beyond the capacity for rational thought. And, but they're playing it for dramatic effect, and actually that's what makes it really funny. Whereas you look at the 2016 Ghostbusters, and it and it and it feels really big and cartoony and silly, and you know that's a different type of comedy that I'm, I'm you know I don't I don't I don't necessarily find funny. Well, in comparison to the 1984 version, it, it was it's. It, well, this know, is there's, the, there's, there's, there's a quote recently where uh, and this might this plays into it because obviously what, what, what's when's Ghostbusters 85 did you say uh, Ghostbusters is 84 84 yeah, 84 so um, there was a quote from Paul Schrader recently which is that the different he said the difference between the he was talking about the 70s but I mean 84 is not a million miles away he was saying that the difference between the 70s and now is not it's not about the filmmakers he said it's actually about maybe the audiences in the sense of an audience was prepared to do some work Whereas maybe in this day and age, there's kind of like been a, a leveling out of what, you know, it kind of like we reduce the risk in film, so therefore we expect the audience to do less because there's less surprises. You know, the, you're right, that, that, that Stay Puff moment is a huge gamble, isn't it, in terms of what an absurd gesture it is. And if it lands flat, it lands bloody flat, doesn't it? Because you've invested a lot of the film into it. But, um, yeah. There's actually a YouTube video on it. I, call, I think it's called The Art of the VFX or something. Okay. And let me find it. The Art of the, of the art of, uh, Stay Puffed. It's on YouTube. You should all watch it. You okay. should watch it. Watch Because it's all about uh, Art of the Scene. Ghostbusters, Stay Puffed, My Shmoney Man, oh. Art of the Scene. And, and, and yeah, it's funny how we're still about this now. But, you know, uh, um, Ivan Reitman, the director, he talks a lot about 
I had this massive scene, but he he, he needed to because the rest of the film, he, he, but you know, the more basically, you know, to get that kind of tone to work is basically a comedy that has stakes and threat and heart and emotion, you know, and to get invested in the characters, you got to feel something, you got to feel that there's stakes, you got to feel that. Uh, these characters are real, and that you can connect with them on an emotional level. So, look, you, you're talking you're talking to someone who's old enough to have been 13 when that hit the cinemas, <laughs> and and in that December of 1984, I was out running in Manchester. They used to have a big inflatable Father Christmas on a town hall, and we came out the cinema pretending to not cross the streams and pretending that Father <laughs> Christmas was in fact the Stay Puft uh, Marshmallow Man. Awesome. <laughs> but, it's great that you of all the random things for you to pick out of thin air that is that is genuinely an icon from from my own like cinema uh, personal cinema history is like a really iconic moment um well, you know, that's, that scene is a very iconic moment and i think it's very easy to get wrong you know if it was really silly and cheesy and stupid you know and it wasn't treated in the way that it was treated like you know from you know, the, the comedy came from character, and it was it was everything was played for dramatic effect. Uh, it wouldn't have worked, and I think Ivan talks about that ground grounding everything around that scene and around the stay path. You know, and mm. it's interesting. I think there was, you know I've been watching a lot of videos about Terminator Dark Fate and Chris Stuck, Stuckman, who's a video YouTuber critic. He was just saying how a lot of films in the seventies and eighties felt real. You know, where a, a lot of these blockbusters at the moment kind of feel too um, too shiny they feel re they don't feel real anymore they feel there's a sense of falseness they're, they're kind of too perfect you know but when you look at the films of that period in terms of blockbusters and, and action you know yeah they, they of course you know visual effects wasn't as incredible as it is today but the filmmakers really uh, they really uh, harnessed and used that to great effect to make things feel real, whether it's a stunt scene with a helicopter chasing a truck or, you know, it's a giant, it's a, it's a giant marshmallow man. And I, you know, it is interesting because, you know, I've watched um, uh, recently, obviously the trailer for the Mandalorian. Mm. It's fucking amazing. And it feels like Star Wars because it feels grounded. It feels real. Like you, like, you know, uh, a new hope and empire strikes back and even return of a Jedi, you know, they've used effects and they've used props and they've used sets and miniatures in the right way uh, where, where that only gives, where, only, you know, that could only... Well, do you think, I mean, I, mean, I mean, I wasn't expecting to go here, but just think about what you're saying. It's it, To me, it's a bit like you, you, had, you had film stock that could only run at a certain speed. So obviously you could only pick up certain things and could only pick up things depending on how you lit it. Whereas yeah. you fast forward into the future, you've got digital cameras that can pick out the lowest light. You've got yeah. CGI that can replicate the whole of the world, yeah. <laughs> you know, without ever having to visit it. And so everything can be, you can almost create, you know, a bit like the way VR headsets can, you know, I can be sat in my living room in Leighton and be in the Taj Mahal if I want with a VR headset. And, yeah. and in a sense, that, that, that notion has hit cinemas in a weird way. Whereas once the director with his, with his or her cinematographer would have been saying, right, what we need to focus on is this. So the, you've still yeah. got the whole screen, but obviously the focus of attention is on the bit that you're meant to watch. Not, we must see everything in the frame as everybody's looking at it all, all the time. Well, do you know what it is? I think, I think back then, I think a lot of effects, I mean, this, this certainly helps with in-camera, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. And 
and, and that certainly helps. Like this you know, the scene with Dana Barrett on the couch and the arms come out and grab her and then suck her into the fridge. Uh, but then there's other stuff like, um, what am I thinking? Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I guess there's, there's just an art to it, isn't there? There's an art to practical effects and matte paintings, which is kind of lost because I think a lot, a lot of filmmakers, you know, you can reach a level where you've got, you've got a huge fucking budget, mm. but then, you know, oh, do you know what? Let's just do it in post. Let's do it in CGI. It's kind of, but I think it's kind of lazy. I think it's lazy and unfortunately, you know, don't get me wrong, like the work that, you know, people like Weta and ILM do is outstanding, second to none, you know, top of the world, it's fucking beautiful, uh, you know, it's so beautiful, but I think, you know, it's about get, it's all about balance, isn't it? It's about getting the balance between practical, uh, uh, practical effects and then the visual effects and marrying those two together in a way where actually, uh, you know, especially if it's a story that has real emotion, you feel part of that story and it feels honest and therefore if it needs to feel honest, it needs to feel real. Yeah, because you know I mean? if, I think I'm, if I think about something that is very CGI heavy, like, say, Avengers Assemble, uh, yeah. there's, the, one, of the, one of the key moments that everyone talks about is probably the least relevant in terms of why... I mean, it does use CGI, but in terms of this, you know, a city being destroyed and stuff, it's almost a nothing. And it's the moment when Hulk just says, I'm always angry. Now... That's a character moment as much as it's been delivered and executed through CGI. But the thing we're responding to is we're, we're digging the emotion of the moment, aren't we? We're not, we're not wondering at the spectacle at all, which is interesting in a film where obviously cities get completely flattened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, don't get me wrong, you know, look, people, if you want to watch a drama, you know, and I know, you know, with all this talk about Marvel and Scorsese and shit, you know, I think there's just, I think dramas are, are generally for a kind of a more mature, you know, a more mature audience and a lot of people uh, can watch great drama at home. And, uh, but, you know, the big screen, you know, it really does um, encompass and allow spectacle uh, to shine, doesn't it? When you're like, wow, look at that mm. huge fucking screen and those snow speeders or, or you know, the Millennium Falcon or, or, or you, know, what, you know, whether it's, you know, four flying from the but, sky. But I would argue, though, that spectacle alone yeah. doesn't make for a film. I mean, like I say, that I'd go back to that Hulk scene. It's like, it's a big emotional scene. You're invested in the film as much as you're invested yeah. in the, the madness of what they're able to concoct in computers. It's still yeah. what we understand as being a universal truth, you know, in terms of the friendship between the Avengers and stuff, and then Hulk's sort of mad moment, as it were. But, but well, it's like that. It's like that scene in Endgame uh, with um, with with Captain America and Thanos. At the, at the, sorry, spoilers. <laughs> I'm sure everyone's seen it by now. You know, due to you know those box office numbers. But there's that scene, isn't it, when Thor's on his back and Cap is fighting, and and, and, and Thanos is about to kill him. And then the hammer just goes flying in the back of Thanos's back, and then, and then the camera turns around, and then the the the, the hammer, you know, uh, you know, flies through the air, and then Captain America grabs it, and then everyone goes, "Oh my god!" And then, but the greatest moment during that isn't the hammer bit; it's when Thor says, uh, "I knew it." <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, you see, it's it's the 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 clever CGI gives you the effects, and you see the magic in front of your eyes, but then the thing you respond to is that line. 
It's all character, man. It's all Indeed. character. Like, which, which you see, in a way, it's old. I mean, and also, I think that there's there's, there's something interesting about what, what you're saying about drama and sophisticated audiences in the sense of what what the problem, I think one of the problems we we have is not so much the films themselves, it's, it's three years of marketing between when we hear about a film, when we see it, as opposed yeah. to in that time, there are other films getting released, and that's kind of weird. But we're not we're not here to talk about the distribution of big blockbusters. Um, what I want to ask you about is you you as a filmmaker um, on your on your webpage it says that Back to the Future is your favourite film. Is that still true? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, good. Yeah. Good. I'm glad I've got one fact right. So from from Absolutely. if we if we go on. Sorry. I was just saying that's never going to change. <laughs> that's never. You, you think there's no future film that would be, be better than Back to the Future? No. <laughs> okay. So let's let's look at that film as a favourite of yours then. And I hope I don't. I hope I don't hear this in twenty years' time and think, "Fucking idiot." <laughs> Get that thing hooked up to the car. Watch this. Yeah. Okay. Got My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious shit. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised how many people, young people, haven't seen it. Actually, people who were born in the uh, noughties and, and stuff. There's a lot of people that haven't even seen Jaws, which kind of blew my mind. Uh, but it's is, crazy. This, is this something you've experienced going talking at schools about filmmaking? Uh, I've, I've asked. You know, definitely with, with younger writers and filmmakers. When I have, yeah, I remember one time I was at, I was at the. I was at the BFI at the South Bank, and yeah. there was a filmmaker, and and he was a young kid, and yeah, he was he was like yeah, very you know, fifteen, you know, I'm forty, and uh, you know, he must have been what I don't know, in his early to mid twenties, and this was a couple of years ago, mm. and uh, we were just having an, we were just having a discussion about film, and I said to him, you know what, you should see Jaws. He was like, Jaws, that film shit. And I just what? was like, I was like. What are you talking about? I was like, dude, you need to go see that film. And, he, you know, I, I don't know, maybe because, you know, some of those films um, might aesthetically look dated. Maybe that's what it is. I don't know. Well, go, but, from your point of view, then, what what is it? What, what let's, let's talk about Back to the Future as why, why you think it encapsulates what makes a good movie. And what do you think... Uh, Filmmakers listening here. Here, let's let's speak to the, pers- the the filmmaker that hasn't seen it. Then, like that young uh-huh. filmmaker that's listening in that that hasn't seen Back to the Future. What are lessons that, that you think you've learned that others could learn from taking notice of a film like Back to the Future? Do you know what it is? I think for me, Back to the Future is um, what really. Do you know what I love underdog stories? Mm-hmm. And and you know, maybe because I feel like a bit of an underdog outsider with the type of things that I love and, you know, the type of movies I want to make or, you know, my background and where I'm from, etc. Mm. Or, you know, I was bullied at school and, and whatnot. So I just kind of felt like an underdog. So, you know, I re and, and, you know, I love those inspirational kind of movies like, you know, Dead Poet Societies, uh, one of them that, that I hold dear to me, Boys in the Hood. But, you know, with Back to the Future, you know, it, it, here's a kid 
who has has got these incredible odds, you know, that he's facing. He has to overcome them. And, you know, I think the line is, um, what's the line? You can put anything, you can achieve anything if you, if you put your mind to it. Or I think something like that. Mm. Uh, and, you know, that's a pretty powerful, positive message for young people. And, you know, we need movies like that, that inspire and give hope to younger generations. Um so yeah, you know the journey that Marty goes on to get to, to get his parents back together and and to get back to 1985. It's a wonderful, beautiful story. It's an amazing script, as you know, with the setups and the payoffs and the way it works structurally as well as tone. You know, a lot of the stuff that Zemeckis does in terms of coverage, some of them are one shots. They're one shots. They're rack. They're rack focuses. Do you want to, um, can you give Can you give a specific example of one that stands out for you? Yeah, there's a there's also on YouTube actually the shot where where he goes uh, uh, with the, with the with the picture and 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 and, and Doc Brown says eighty eight miles per hour eighty mate da 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 and he runs out of the room and literally it's just one pan shot of the camera it just sweeps across the room and then Marty goes running after him he goes what what what's what's that or something and he and he, and he goes running out of the room and it's just that's a such a Great scene, and there's obviously the other scene where Marty, Marty gets hit by the car, and then he gets knocked on the floor, and then who, who in the, and he's in the background. It's like deep focus. He's in the background, and then George McFly, who's out of shot, uh, sits up into shot in the foreground, and, and the camera acts focus. That storytelling, isn't it? Mm. It's kind, of, it's kind of like you know. Uh, I think with TV and 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 now with Vestford and whatnot, things are kind of moving slightly the other way where you know tv traditionally has been very cutty lots of coverage shot here cut here cut here cut here yeah, it's yeah, a holy yeah. you know what i mean it's just like oh well, you're telling me where to look why don't I, why don't we just do a two shot and just let the scene fucking play out you know audiences aren't stupid audiences don't need you know mad crazy devils of sugar like i do Precisely, 1.21 a.m. in zero seconds, we shall catch up with him at the time machine. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Doc. Uh, are you telling me that you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? So what you're saying is what, what some of the stuff that you really enjoyed about what Zemeckis is doing is, is he's using the frame to bring the action in rather than throw the camera around and find the action. Well, I, well, absolutely. I mean, it's not what Spielberg does, isn't it? Mm. Spielberg, 
in his coverage and his blocking. Like, oh my god, if you li- if you're listening to this and you're a filmmaker and you li- and you just love directing and whatnot, please watch Catch Me if you can without the sound on. Take the sound off because that's the cl- that's you know it's a whole different experience and you'll actually get to see uh, the the camera for what it is. You know, strip back just mm. what he's with the camera and Spielberg with these amazing one-ears and coverage where he follows and people you know coming from the background to the foreground back to the background and you know all in one he's one shot and actually what it does is it makes it feel more real it makes it truer to life uh, in a way because it isn't so cutting and, and the world and, and you know these characters also sometimes we forget they actually inhibit a world don't they uh, so the characters in the world, uh, you know, it's a richer experience for the viewer. So is this, I mean, uh, out of interest then, is this an exercise you've done with the film? You've watched it with the oh, sound? I watched, I watched loads of films on mute. I, I, I think, what was the last one I did? I can't remember, I watched it and then I watched it on mute and then I watched it again with sound, uh, like straight back to back. It's just like, it, it's, yeah, it's, you can learn a lot from it as a so what, so, so, so what you So what you're saying is you... Because obviously you're not listening to what's being said, you're not. You're only. You're only distracted by what you see, and so yeah. what you're saying is, as a watcher, you're then focusing on how the story's being visually told, as opposed to what I'm being told. Well, in in, in a way, it's like you know when when you've got like a, a film. I think music, um, you know, can be such a. Uh, it can elevate things in such a way where actually you could you kind of get lost in that. So sometimes. Mm. You know, if you just want to look at the picture and what someone does with their camera, and, that, and it's, it's a weird experience actually watching something on mute because it feels like, you know, you've got you've got these massive things on you covering your ears and you're on set, and it's just the camera moving. It actually, for me, it feels like it's a camera on set, and there's no magic, there's no tricks. It's, let's just see what he does with the camera. Mm. Do you know what I mean? No, no, because I, I was at Fright Fest this this year covering the films. And there was a film, there was a three-hander, just to, like a proper sort of chamber piece horror where it's all set in one house, three actors, and there was a moment where all it was, and I swear to God, there's nothing more complicated than this, was a slow pull on a door with a wooden cross on it, and it was terrifying because yeah. it was you were being dragged in by yeah. what the camera was doing. And yet, technically, you could argue it's not, it's nothing but for the moment in the film and what you're what you're feeling. It really dragged you in, and yeah, it feels like it's, it doesn't sound like the most complicated thing in the world to do with a with a camera. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? I think horror is. It's, 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 you know, I, I love the Conjuring, and I love what James Wan did with it. I do genuinely think it's a modern masterpiece, mm. and it takes a lot of the language in the cinema of horror from the seventies in terms of the way the camera moves and and and, and the suspense he builds. And there's that one shot, isn't it, with the two young sisters in the bedroom. And one of them was like, "Can you see it? Can you see it?" And it's you know it's at night time there in their bedroom, and the door is kind of slightly ajar, and there's a shadow there, and you're like, you know, if you're at home and you're watching that, and the lights are off, you your mind actually starts to play tricks on you. You actually start to go, "Oh wait, is something there?" Mm-hmm. Holy, fuck. you start to imagine something there, and and and, and nine times out of ten, that's more terrifying. Then seeing, uh, you know, <laughs> I felt the, you know, I felt the same watching it follows in the sense of because of the nature of what the story was, this idea that people are following you because you're cursed. Um, you begin to watch the film in a whole different way. So whereas your your natural instinct is to watch the foreground, i.e., what the what you're being shown, 
And yeah. have, you, have you seen it follows? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you know the way that once once the rules of the game are in are in transit, as it were, you end up yeah. watching the background of a film as well as the foreground, which is a uh-huh. a really uneasy way to watch a movie. Well, you know what it is. I think with with those with horror films and with action films, I think sometimes if you could tap into something that's really primal, mm. that's what talk about. It follows. It's a primal fear based kind of instinct when somebody is literally after you do you know what i mean in mm. the creepiest ways and like, like i said with that with that scene with the psychological aspect of the scene and the conjuring a, a lot you know horror works so well on both a primal and psychological level if you can get it right what um what what are you developing any feature films at present you can talk about yeah, I'm working. Yeah, I'm working on a few. I've been working on a few for quite some time, and I'm not, you know, I'm not in any rush to to uh, jump behind the camera and just do it. I, the scripts have to be right. Mm. Uh, so I've got, yeah, I've got an action, one action comedy. I've got a coming of age comedy, uh, a drama comedy, which I'm doing at the moment, which is, yeah, which is which is the one that looks like feels like my my first feature. And is that, is that uh, tapping yeah. into what you're talking about with what appeals about Back to the Future? No, 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 no. In a way, I think it's based on my first short film, Big Things, and it's just about coming of age story about two two kids growing up in the hood, trying to be something they're not. So, what is it you're after? What you got? I got Charlie, bit of Ash, skunk. Take your pick. You like a bit of that, do you? What are you on? Don't watch that. You know how us bad mans do. I got this. Waste man. Come on then. I got a day. What are you after? But it's like I, I guess the, the best way to describe it is super bad meets Eight Mile. And then there's another film which is an action comedy, uh, which I don't want to talk too much about. Which I'm yeah, I'm trying to. I'm still working on trying to get the script right. Then there's a horror film I've been I've been working on since two, from since 2011 mm-hmm. that, I'm, that is it means a lot to me that that I want to you know it's just I've gone through a few writers and it's 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 a, it's a challenge you know sometimes but oh, but at the same time you know each film is so this is so weird you can't force these things each film have has have their own uh, timeline in their own organic kind of uh, progress you know no no I've, uh, I've been working with a director and he's he's a great advocate of percolating which i know it can be infuriating because we all want to finish because we're kind of we grow up with like the way school works you know you get your homework done you hand it in and yeah. he's of the view that you you sit on things and you let you know let, leave it for a couple of weeks and then you come back to it and suddenly you see it differently and you begin oh to yeah. uh, expand on what you had. Whereas if you bullet a gate it, yeah. you may well get something, but it'll be it'll be the thing that's forced in rather than what your subconscious has worked out while you haven't been thinking too hard about it. Do, do, do you know what? In a way, it's like trusting the universe. You know, like, <laughs> it's weird, isn't it, when you, think, when you start thinking this way? Yeah, yeah. You, you know, I, I don't know. Like, I, you know I've, I've met quite a few filmmakers who, like, who can't wait to be... Couldn't have said go right or wherever and live that lifestyle, but I don't know, man. Like, just trust the journey and 
trust trust the journey and just refine refine your art and just keep going you know i think those are important things um to follow and not because you know i've seen film i've i've seen filmmakers you know uh rush a script and then just because they're so eager to make that first film mm. and they make it and then it's shit <laughs> and then you know three four years later you know, it, it, it quite possibly could be twice as hard to get back on that horse. And who knows? I might make it. You know, my film might be shit. I don't, I don't know how. It's going to no, you're out. right. There's no guarantees of anything. But I think yeah. one thing that is guaranteed is that it's much cheaper to develop a film when it's on a script than it is when yeah. you're on set. Oh, absolutely. So you may as well spend time, as much time as you can afford to spend. Yeah. Getting the script right, because then you're halfway home, aren't you? Well, yeah, absolutely, and you, you know what is this like? It's, 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 you know, as a director, it's about preparation, isn't it? Mm. So the more, the more prepared you are, the the the, the greater chance you're going to have of success. Uh, you know, and I'm I'm my own worst critic, and I'm my I'm also my biggest fan. So you know, that's that's a balancing act within itself. You know, you got to be your biggest. That's the delusion fan. that keeps us all going. Well, I don't know. Is it a delusion? I don't know, man. Well, it has to be. You know? It's not. I don't. Mean, I don't mean in the pejorative sense. I mean in terms of you have to kid yourself that you you can do it because nobody else is asking you to do it. In a sense, you know, if you're making stuff that nobody's asked for, then you've got to believe it's worth doing, haven't you? Which is a. Well, you know yeah. Well, I guess you know what it is. I, I think it's a feeling, isn't it? Mm. You know, if you, you know, for me, it's definitely a feeling, and I'm not worried. You know, I you know I have I have complete belief in myself. I, you know, I, yeah, I've been reading a lot about the imposter syndrome. I thank God I don't suffer from that. <laughs> so, so you're you very know, lucky. I'm not, I'm, I'm not worried. I'm, I'm just you know, it will happen when it happens, and when it when it happens, the time will be right. You know, in the meantime, it's just about developing those projects and making sure they're in they're smart projects. That the, the you know the, the the budget level is smart. Uh, the type of projects they are was smart, you, you know, in terms of the stage that I'm at now in my career, mm. and uh, yeah, just and just try to be better than I was yesterday or last week or last month, and really apply all of those things that I've learned through failure. You know, a lot of people are you know worried about failure. Actually, you should embrace failure risks. No, I was, well, I was, I was interested in what you said about you know you were you were speaking to a room of kids about about. And they asked you, I can't remember the question was exactly, but you were saying to start as early as you can, to learn mistakes as soon as you can, so you can put yeah. that learning into practice as soon as you can, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Farron, Farron Blackburn, a good friend of mine, director, mm. uh, uh, he's, he's not like, Farron, if you're listening, I love you. He, he like, done Daredevil and he's for Netflix. And he's, he, I think he's just, he just done something for Bad Wolf. I think it was a Discovery of Witches or something. Anyway, I remember he, we were having a chat one day and he said to me, must must make cheap mistakes, <laughs> and I was like, "He's so right." <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, no, it's just it's just the way you learn and 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 how you know. And I think so many people are just eager to make that film and, and get there. When actually, do you really want to? Why rush? Enjoy the journey. You know, just enjoy the journey and uh, and um, and learn as much as you can to to master the craft, whatever tone your voice and the tone that you're and the genre you're playing with, just to master that, you know, it's a process, isn't it? No, no, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm, someone that, I'm someone that came to this a bit later in life than most, and I didn't believe that notion of, of, of finding your voice in terms of writing. I was like, I've been a journalist for ages, I can write. And, and it's only when you begin to break through and begin to see what your voice is that you go, 
oh, right, yeah, that was that thing that I had to be patient about because it ain't going to happen just because I want it to. You know what? It's, finding your voice is such an interesting thing because I think a lot of people are like, what's my voice? What's my voice? And, you know, for me, you know, it's, it's really simple. It's a really easy thing. And it's always just trying to just tell personal stories in an honest and truthful way that are dear to your heart. Because, you know, that's that's your voice, being true to who you are and, uh, and, and you know, having the, the, the courage to tell those stories in a way that you can tell them, that you, you, will, you, you can only tell them. So if you're true to yourself and, and, and tell deeply personal stories that are true to you, like, that's your voice, isn't it? Mm. My, my, no, that's the way I see it. No, no, no. And, it's, it, and weirdly, it is, that's, I think that's the bit that everyone finds hard because I think initially you can't help but try and emulate what it is you're, you're like. And through the process of emulating what you like, you begin to find out what you like to write about. Which then becomes I, you. I guess I'm just very lucky in that sense because, like the work that I do, it's kind of distinct to me. You know, I don't, I don't you know, I don't see my work as trying to emulate. Any, any, I'm not, I'm not saying you were suggesting that, but I'm just saying that, you know, of course I homage things in, in my films to things that I love, but all the stories that I tell are deeply personal to me. Mm. You know, but that, but that, but but you you say I mean it isn't always I mean it may it may come easy to you in that sense, but. It's something that I know. Having spoke to other writers before, you can tell that's actually what they're struggling with is the the honest thing they want to say. They, they, you, you, and I've done it myself. You, you hide behind something else rather than say what you want to say. And eventually, when you when you begin to say what you want to say, it begins to get better. Yeah, yeah. I guess so. I guess it's just that willingness to kind of be open and vulnerable. Uh, I guess you know I'm partly on the spectrum as well, so I have this, I have a real lack of filter. <laughs> that could sometimes work in my favour, sometimes it doesn't. But, but <laughs> well, in terms, just 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 one last bit then. So when when you yeah. when you're when you're writing, say your coming of age script, yeah. Um, what what for you is your writing when you were right when you were developing that in in the beginning of it. What's, yeah. what's your process of gathering, you know, whatever the kernel is that, that, that inspires you, and then how do you expand on that kernel of an idea to then make for it to become a script? Are you like someone that, you know, gets up with the lark, midnight midnight candle burning sessions? Are you index cards all over the room? Are you, you know, a man who goes walking in the park until the answer comes? What, what's your approach to, to sort of trying to get your ideas off the ground and make them into sort of premises that are, that are, that are stories you can fill with characters and personal um, feelings? Well, you know what is like, you know, I might kind of um, digress a little bit, but basically for me, the process has been trying to find a film that I can make on a decent budget, which isn't too big or too small, trying to find something that I felt is achievable as a first film. So that takes, so some, you know, somebody who loves Marvel and Disney and, you know, Star Wars and all those big blockbusters, Spielberg, as a Spielberg kid, you know, it's like, oh shit, I can't make any of those films, can I? I can't have those running and action and jumping explosions. So that was a struggle within itself. But then I, look, I looked at my work and it was a staring, you know, my first short film, Big Things, I was like, oh my God, this is a great short. Why don't I just tell that story about me growing up in West London and trying to be gangster and actually do that as a 90 minute film? And that made sense because that's something that I feel like you know, uh, I could make on 
you know, under a million, 700, 600, 500, 400, 300, and so forth, you know, if I have to, yeah, yeah, obviously, yeah, yeah. I want to make it 50p, but, you know, it's something that feels like, hey, this is something that I've, I, you know, a story that is, I, I know really, it's very close to me, I know really well, I grew up around this, uh, and it's my personal story, I was like, oh shit, hey, that, that's the story, That this is the one, this is great, because it has comedy, it has adventure, it has heart, you know, it has drama, it has stakes, it has all those things that I love, and it has music. So you know, it's like, oh, right, great. And then, and then, so once I looked at that, so you know, and I thought this is the one. Then I basically spent a year trying to outline it, mm-hmm. and then once I got it to a stage, and I'm I'm, I'm a director who's 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 uh, you know, I've been, you know, I made my first short film, Big Things in Two Bands and Eyes, ten years on. I know what my strengths are, what my weaknesses are, and I know I'm a much stronger director uh, than I am as a writer. Like if you look at Painkiller, written by Sidney Lim, that's a phenomenal film, and you know I'm not I'm not being big-headed or ego about. It. I'm very proud of that film, and a lot of that because was to do because of the strength of her writing. And- Take the money. <coughs> Guys, 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 calm down. Ah! That was my Calm down, you got another one. Ah! Stop shooting my phones! Stop shooting my fucking phones! Then when you have really strong, um, really strong writing or script or you know words on a page, as a director that only makes your job easier. So once I had the outline, I was then I went and got a producer, Jude Goldry and Michael Bellino attached to it. I was like, hey, let's, I want to make this, I want to make this, and then I I got the writers involved as well, two writers on it. So you know I you know I am part you know producer, writer, creator, development, exec person director you know all of those things i love and and are kind of inherent in in my character anyway so it just feels natural to that so then it was just a case of re-outlining the outline to you know with all my ideas and 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 then you know having those development uh you know chats with the with the producers as well as the writers and really steering it in in a certain direction so yeah, so so does that mean so, in that sense then in in that process then are you yeah uh, are those writers you're working with are they then doing passes of the script with 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 notes from you of the current draft or absolutely, I, yeah absolutely so okay like I spent a year outlining myself got you and they came or the team came on board and we spent a year another year just on the outline off between us uh-huh. and then. And then because we've done all that heavy lifting in terms of structure and character and plot, uh, they turn around as a really solid draft within three to four months. Brilliant. Good work. I know. It's so good. And it's so great because it's, it's like it, – all the structure, it's sound. It's a – it's sound it really is you know it's not like one of those situations where you've written a draft and you're gonna go oh my god i've got to rewrite this from scratch because the structure's fucked or the story's not working or this ain't working because you know you get into situations like that and then it's like draft 24 
and, and you're just changing scenes and you know you get lost in it no no I spoke, I spoke to a writer called Mark Sanderson and he was saying there's like a quick there's a there's a trade-off you either spend time outlining and less time script writing or you spend no time at all outlining and you'll spend all that time script writing so it's well, you it's up to you in I, a way in a sense but you've well, got sorry I was just going to say it's it to me, and I I I I kind of follow your your approach. I don't have, I don't have other writers to write for me, but but certainly I I I value the outlining time before I start putting things down the script because I'd rather know it works and the questions that you might have about how it functions and what the characters are doing are questions. It's so much easier to answer when you've just got a ten page, twenty page document that describes it than when you've got a ninety five. 120 page screenplay to deconstruct and reconstruct you know what it's really uh, you know i think there's no there's no hard and fast rules in your business i mm. just know in my case i i rather w- would work on the outline and get it all right before i mm. go to script you know but some writers they prefer they can't you know outlining and, and doing one pages and doing synopsis you know they, they you know it doesn't come in a, certainly in a very early stages of development, it's, it's not like second nature to them. And sometimes they don't even know where the story is leading, so they need to write a script. Don't oh, no, they? no, that's, what, that's what I'm saying. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, obviously, I'm sorry, if it came across that way, I didn't mean it. I mean that there, there, there's, the, either way you do it, there's no shortcut to a finished script. It's either you spend time yeah. planning what you're going to write, or you write what you want and then work out what it is you're trying to write. Either or. Yeah. You, they, it takes roughly the same time. It's not like there's a there's no shortcut to a to a good a good solid uh, story that people are going to enjoy once it's dramatized. Absolutely, absolutely, man. There's no shortcuts in any of this, you know. Mm. You, uh, I think one of my other friends, David Lynch, said it's like a blessing and a curse what we do, you know. <laughs> it's, uh, and I thought about that quite a lot, and I still think about it from time to time. And it's true, you know. It's like if you're a filmmaker. You know, sometimes it's in the blood. Do you know what I mean? No, that totally. Kind of makes... I think it has you know, to I... be. I think all art, all, all art in, a, in a way, is about compulsion, not about just want. If you're compelled to do something, you'll do it. If you're not compelled, yeah. you won't. And that's just simple human nature to me. The, 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 <laughs> the power of Christ compels you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I wish that would happen sometimes, but, you know, it's just a blinking cursor at times. Uh, well, look, Mustafa, I... I yeah. We, we've had a hell of a chat and I've enjoyed myself. Uh, that half an hour has flown, gone past, and we've nearly doubled it. So um, it just, oh, <laughs> just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the podcast. And also, best of luck with the, uh, with the release of Hate. Uh, when it's thank available, we'll, uh, we'll do our sharing at our end. And uh, when the coming of age or the action comedy or whichever one comes first, hopefully we can get you back on and talk more in detail about making your first feature. Thank you so much. It's, it's a pleasure being able to, you know, just talk to other filmmakers. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. 
With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina. 